I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to spend most of our time at the end of chapter 6 and at the beginning of chapter 7. And I would love for you to literally follow along with us this morning. I want you to see right in front of you what God's Word has to say to us as a church family together this morning. We're in the middle of this six-week sermon series we're calling Family Matters. What we want to do is, as a church, we want to try to understand why family is so important to us and why family can never be ultimate for us. We need to see, as a church, we need to see our family clearly, but we need to see beyond our family. We need to look at and understand our families through the lens of the cross of Christ. And so we've said we want to crucify our family values. And today we are talking about sex. If you're visiting with us this morning, congratulations. This, this is the sex sermon, okay? But we cannot spend six weeks on our family issues if we don't talk about sex, and I'm talking about sex in the biblical context of marriage, okay? I just I want to get that out there and make it very clear that up until only very recently, the Bible, all of church history, all of church doctrine, all of church tradition has unanimously taught and practiced that marriage is intended by God to be enjoyed in a did I say marriage? Sex is intended by God to be enjoyed in a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. And sex outside of a promised, committed husband and wife marriage relationship is outside of God's will. That's what we continue to teach and practice here at GCR. And together, we're doing our best to help each other maintain that. And so as we get into this today, let me promise you right at, right at the start here, no matter how uncomfortable you may be right now, I am more uncomfortable, okay? <laughs> Much more uncomfortable. But we have to talk about this. I don't think we can ignore this topic because the culture we live in sees sex very differently from the way the Bible sees it. And the culture is loud, and the culture is powerful, and the world we live in has so distorted sexuality, we don't even know what it's for anymore, or how to practice it. So we need to talk about it. And I don't just think church is a safe place to do that. I think church is one of the best places to have this conversation. Now, the Bible does talk a lot about sexual immorality, not because sex is bad, the Bible has a very high view of sex. God created sex. He knows how sex works. And he gave it to husbands and wives in the very beginning for very specific purposes. And so this sermon is not don't have sex. Okay? This sermon is if you're married, have sex. And if you're already having sex in your marriage, have more. All right? A re... I finally found what it takes to get, to get Craig to say amen. All right. That, I, it took me a while. There it was. There was a recent study by Dartmouth University that found that having sex once a week will give you the same happiness boost as a $50,000 raise at work. So if you and your spouse are feeling like you're not making enough money, I've got at least one suggestion. <laughs> That's one reason, I guess, 
for frequent and regular sex in your marriage, but the scriptures give us more reasons and better reasons. The first reason I want to get out on the table today is that frequent and regular sex will help prevent temptation in your marriage. This is probably the most obvious one. I don't want to spend much time on that, but the scripture does address it in these terms. If you'll look at 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 2, I'm just going to read a few verses here. The Apostle Paul writes, Since there is so much immorality, each husband should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. The husband and the wife should be having sex often enough so that neither of them is frustrated or tempted. You're trying to avoid the conditions that might allow the devil to get a foothold. So church, we're not just battling the pull of biology here. We're fighting against Satan's attacks on your marriage. One way for a husband and wife to fight the devil is to have sex. And don't think that you and your spouse are not vulnerable to that kind of temptation or that neither of you is susceptible to adultery. It happens. It happens to good, godly people. It happens a lot. And if your marriage is a declaration of the gospel, like we looked at last Sunday, if your marriage proclaims the love and the faithfulness of God to a watching world, why would you ever expect the devil to leave it alone? All studies consistently show today that married couples are having sex less than two or three times a month. And so given the countless opportunities in our world today to satisfy our desires illicitly, the Bible's instructions to guard against temptation still seem appropriate today. I mean, these are Paul's words, not mine. There is so much immorality. Regular sex helps prevent temptation in a marriage. That's a pretty good reason. Here's some even better reasons. Regular and frequent sex in a marriage proclaims the gospel. Go back up to the end of chapter 6. I want to start reading, uh, starting in verse 15. Listen to the apostle. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that the one who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body. For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But the one who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but the one who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. How could we ever possibly understand what it means for two to become one? 
For two separate people to be totally united together. How could we ever comprehend what Jesus means when he says, you and God are going to be one. Just like I and the Father are one. I am in the Father, the Father is in me, and we are in you as one. How could we ever understand that? Well, God has come up with this thing. That involves a covenant and vows and promises and an ongoing unifying experience between the two in the covenant that's mind-blowing. Sex is what unites together two promise-making people into a life-giving covenant union before God and the whole world. When the prophet Malachi talks about marriage, he says... Have the two not become one. In flesh and spirit, he says, they are his. Paul says the one who joins himself to a prostitute joins Christ to that prostitute. Why? Because sex is a joining together, not just of bodies, but of spirit. So sex outside the marriage vows, outside the marriage commitment... That's a sin. It's a sin against your own body. And not in the way like smoking cigarettes or eating too many cheese fries is a sin against your own body. This is different. Because uh, for, for Christians, your body is not your own. Right? It's a temple of God's spirit. Sex without marriage or, or outside the marriage desecrates God's temple, which is something set apart by God for God's purposes of communicating his love and faithfulness to the world. It's something holy that, that you're using to do something unholy, something that is contrary to the gospel itself. And so sex within our marriages proclaims the gospel and it also prioritizes oneness. Okay, now listen, I want you to pay close attention to this part, okay? I really, I'm begging you to listen to this very carefully because our culture, and I think even our, even our Christian culture, our church culture, doesn't really see this. Sex is where a married couple experiences and expresses their God-ordained unity and equality. Okay? Now again, our culture and I think even our church culture can put blinders on us that, that we can see this kind of language all throughout the Bible from Old Testament through Revelation. But we miss it. Let me look at uh, let me read verses uh, 3 and 4 again. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. The husband has ownership of his wife's body. He owns her body. Well, yeah, duh. Everybody knows the husband is the head of the wife. No. No. The wife also has ownership of her husband's body. His body belongs to her. You see what Paul's doing here. The marriage partners are not in some hierarchical relationship where one is over the other. There is no flow chart. There is no chain of command in a marriage. 
Marriage is a relationship of mutual and equal unity and submission with each other. Each partner having equal authority over the other. Paul does this throughout several chapters here in 1 Corinthians. If you look at verses 10 through 11, he says, The wife cannot divorce her husband and the husband cannot divorce his wife. Verses 12 through 16, he says a Christian guy who's married to an unbeliever cannot separate from her and a Christian woman who's married to an unbeliever cannot separate from him. In verses 32, 33, and 34, Paul lists all the pros and cons of marriage for a man and then he gives the exact same list for the woman. Paul is bending over backwards here to treat husbands and wives totally and unmistakably equal. In a Christian marriage, the wife has authority over her husband. She does. She owns his body and he cannot deny her his marital obligation. In the exact same way it says the husband owns the wife's body and she cannot deny him. That's provocative, huh? What does this mean? This is one flesh, church. This is one single unit. This is togetherness. This is the oneness. You know, the first explicit mention of sex in the Bible is in Genesis 2. The Lord God made a woman from the side of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, verse 23 of Genesis 2, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And you know, when we read this, we think it's only talking about a physical sexual union between two bodies and between two sets of body parts. But it is so much more than that. A marriage is leaving your parents and uniting with another so profoundly that the husband and wife actually become one new single person. Every aspect of their two lives are sewn together. The man and the woman merge together into a single legal, social, economic, emotional, physical, and spiritual union. They give up their rights and their independence. They give themselves completely to one another. And one of the most important ways that's experienced and expressed is sexually. Sex is the God-created way to give your entire self to your spouse. Sex is God's way for a man and a woman to say to each other, I belong completely and exclusively and permanently to you. That's why sex outside of marriage is illegitimate and against God's will. It's not just body parts. It's not just a casual physical act. You know, if Paul were only talking about body parts, he would say the one who unites with a prostitute unites with a prostitute. That's not what he says. He says don't unite yourself with a prostitute because why? Remember, he says the two will become one flesh. One person. 
right? The man and the woman who have sex are united at every level of their lives. Don't unite with someone sexually unless you're willing to unite with that person emotionally and personally and socially and economically and legally and permanently. Tim Keller, who I, I love to read, he says, you can paraphrase this passage in 1 Corinthians 6 this way. Don't you know that the purpose of sex is always one flesh? To become united to another person in every area of life. Is that what you're seeking with the prostitute? Of course not. So don't have sex with her. The priority is oneness. Sex is meant by God to continually drive the husband and the wife together toward each other. You know the Old Testament word, right? The King James word is knowing you know your wife. You know your husband. We say in the biblical way, right? Well, if all goes well, your honeymoon should be the worst sex of your life. I think that's the way it's designed. Because intimacy grows the more you know each other. The more you learn about each other. The closer you get, the better it gets. Scripture tells married couples to delight in the sexual union because it connects you. That's why the Bible does not allow marriage without sex. Paul's calling on both husbands and wives to fulfill their marital duty. Literally, the original Greek word here, it's more like give what is owed. Verse 5, do not defraud is one way to translate this word. Do not cheat your spouse out of what is rightfully hers or his. It's something each partner owes to the other. And so because of that, sex can never be used in a marriage as, as a, a bribe or a reward for good behavior. It should never be used as a threat or a punishment. You know, we, we make jokes about so-and-so is sleeping on the couch tonight. Or, you know, so-and-so's in the doghouse. No. Never. Now, you don't just insist on sex on demand. Each spouse must be sensitive to the emotional and physical state of the other. But one partner cannot consistently try to get out of it. The only exception Paul allows, and he says this is a concession. Did you pick up on that? He doesn't like this. It's not his favorite thing, but, but he gives it as a concession. If both spouses agree together to abstain from sex for a limited time for a sake of an unusually concentrated period of communion with the Lord. Maybe it's a retreat. Maybe it's fasting. Maybe it's concentrated prayer. But it's something big and something unusual that Paul has in mind. And then they come right back together. It's a concession he allows. Verse 6. The Bible does not allow marriage without sex because marriage without sex is not marriage. It's something, but it's not marriage. Couples who've settled into a sexless marriage where they're just living together like roommates, they have given up on God's plan for strengthening their union. And your sex life is, in a lot of ways, of course, your business. But your sex life is for the purpose 
of making your marriage stronger, making your love deeper, making your commitments to one another richer. And so in a very real way, your children are depending on your sex life. Now, trust me, they don't want to hear about it. But in the same way, this church is dependent on your sex life. And we don't want to hear about it either. Okay? Let's flip over to Ephesians chapter 5. Because here's the next point I want to make. Sex in our marriages promotes Christ-likeness. Ephesians 5.21 says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Frequent and regular sex shapes both the husband and the wife more into the image of Jesus. You might say it's a spiritual discipline. God shows us in our marriages that we do not belong to ourselves, but we pour ourselves out in service to the other. Jesus says if you want to gain your life, you really need to lay it down. And don't we do that in our marriages? Like Christ and the church, the one flesh union is never forged through demands for the one to meet the other's needs, but it's through a sense of common purpose and common mission together. The scriptures tell us to delight in the sexual union with a spouse, not because sex is an appetite that has to be filled, but because it reminds us to love and to serve the other. It makes us into the kind of people who stand by our promises and stand by each other. It teaches us that love is never a way to get what I need. Love is a way to pour myself out for somebody else. We don't love our spouses because we find her or him to be sexually attractive. It's the other way around. We grow to find our spouses more sexually attractive because we share a growing love for each other. When scripture demands that the sexual rights of both spouses be maintained, it's not talking about a legal thing. It's, it's not like a contract. It's talking about the love and the attention that two people should give to one another who've been brought together in Christ. Each partner mutually submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Each partner most concerned not with getting sexual pleasure from, but giving sexual pleasure to. In the Woody Allen movie, uh, Annie Hall, if you've seen it, don't tell me you've seen it. Don't admit it to anybody. But the therapist asked Annie uh, early on in the movie, she asked, how often are you and Alvy having sex? And she says, all the time, constantly, like three times a week. And then later on in the movie, she's asking Alvy, the therapist is, in another private session, how often are you and Annie having sex? He says, almost never, hardly ever, three times a week. <laughs> okay, it takes two to tango, right? You've got to figure that stuff out. And it's going to take all the loving and sacrificing and serving and attention that the Bible talks about. Consistent Kindness and learning and communicating. Daily attention and respect. It's not about you. It's about paying attention to something bigger than both of you. And above all, here's the last thing. And this is, this is the most important thing that we're going to talk about as it relates to marriage and sex this morning. 
The sexual relationship in your marriage is a way to practice the cross of Christ. Remember last week in Ephesians 1, we talked about how God's will in Christ is to bring all things and all people together. Remember, it's a mystery. Remember? At the cross, God has torn down all the barriers that divide us. We talked about this last week. Well, if you'll continue in Ephesians 2, Paul's talking about the same thing. He says in verse 14, He himself, Jesus Christ, is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new person out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. Sex in our marriages is difficult. Trying to keep it in bounds, trying to keep it kindled. It's not as easy as all of us thought when we first got married. You know, things change. Things change when you have kids. Things change when you both start working. Things change when you get overcommitted. You know, whole days can go by when you feel like you barely see each other. You know, you're at work in the middle of the morning and you get a text from your wife. I'm not wearing any underwear because you forgot to put it in the dryer, right? Things change. That's kind of making its way around the room. That's funny. We're all too stinking busy, you know? We've got the TV, and we've got the streaming, and we've got the internet, and we've got the phones, and we've got the kids, and we've got their schedules and our work schedules. All of that gets in the way of a gospel-proclaiming, Christ-forming sexual relationship in your marriage. So we've got a lot working against us. But here's the main thing. The biggest problem is that all of us are bringing our baggage into the marriage bed. Our individual sexual scripts get written and shaped by a trillion different influences and experiences, and a lot of that we have no control over. And when we get married, we don't just join our bodies and our spirits together, we join all of our baggage together. Sometimes one or both of the spouses are dealing with guilt or shame, maybe because of sexual sin, Maybe because of a past trauma that is not their fault at all. And that's when the marriage bed can be like the cross. That's where a spouse finds love and understanding and grace and forgiveness and acceptance and peace. If your marriage has slipped into a place where the sex is not regular or it's not frequent, or maybe it's not even happening at all. Don't just shrug your shoulders and yawn about it. That is a full-blown attack on your marriage from Satan himself. The devil does not want you to experience what God intends for you to experience in your marriage. The devil is trying to separate and keep apart what God has joined together. And he'll use every kind of distraction and circumstance and attitude to do it. 
Satan's been doing this since the very beginning when he tried to drive Adam and Eve apart by fostering shame and guilt and mistrust. That's his game. He exploits our sin. And he tries to use that against us in our marriages. All of us have committed sexual sin, whether it's in our thoughts or in our deeds. We've all sinned. And Satan wants to use that against you. He wants, that, he wants to use that against you and your marriage. Maybe it was a long time ago. But you still feel like you're trapped by sin, by, by shame, and by guilt. And maybe, maybe that makes you feel distant from your spouse or from God. No, look at the cross. All is forgiven at the cross. All of us have sinned, and all of us are still susceptible to sin. But our Lord Jesus has taken care of all of that at the cross. You know, maybe if there were such a thing as pure people and impure people, we could just divide the world up into two groups and marry accordingly. But that's not the case. We all stand together under the mercy and the grace of the cross. Remember, Jesus was a virgin. His bride, the church, was not. But he loved us anyway. He died for us. He brought us into a righteous relationship with God and with each other at the cross. And one of the best ways to communicate that unconditional love and acceptance and forgiveness and belonging and grace. One of the best ways to communicate all of that to your husband or to your wife is to keep your sex life going together. So married people, let me, let me ask a couple of questions here as we close. A couple of questions. Don't look at each other as I'm asking these questions, okay? I don't want to start a fight and I don't want anybody to start making out either, okay? I want you to consider these questions, okay? Man, these are important. Can you identify one external factor that you need to address to move closer to God's vision for your sexual intimacy in your marriage? Is there an external factor that you need to address? Is it children? Is it work? Is it your schedule? Is it Social media or, or internet or technology distractions. What's getting in the way? An external factor. Can you identify one? I hear one. <laughs> what about an internal factor? Can you identify an internal factor that you need to address? Is there an unresolved conflict in your marriage? Maybe there's some physical issues, a physical ailment even, or some kind of thing that, that you need to talk about. Maybe it's a past trauma or past sin. Is there something inside you that's messing with both of you? 
Listen, I, uh, I know this is difficult. There's nothing easy about this. Marriage is hard. Sex is tough. It requires a lot of grace. Grace from our Lord to us in our marriages, to us as individual Christians, and to us as a church. In Ephesians 5, remember last week, Paul says marriage is a profound mystery. Marriage is weird and it's painful and it's difficult and it is so beautiful and wonderful and precious and glorious. It's a mystery because it represents the gospel. Your marriage, our marriages represent the gospel and the cross of Christ. Just to remind you, here's the gospel. This is the gospel right here. That you are more sinful, more twisted, more sick and broken and fallen than you would ever dare to believe. And by God's grace and the cross of Jesus Christ, you are more forgiven, more accepted, more belonging, and more a part of God for all eternity than you could ever dare to hope. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. A radical truthfulness about who you are and a radical commitment from God in Christ to love you and to stay with you no matter what forever. Let's pray together, church. Lord, have mercy on us. In the name of Jesus, God, we appeal to your love and your grace and your forgiveness and your mercy. We appeal to your strength and your patience and everything that we need from your spirit, God, so that our marriages reflect your love and your faithfulness to a watching world. God, would you please bless our marriages? Father, as we have identified those external and internal factors that are getting in the way of a sexual relationship within our marriages that would shape us more into the image of your son, that would connect us more closely with our spouses, and that would uh, impact our kids and our church, God, a, a sexual relationship in our marriages that would proclaim your gospel to the world. Father, as we have identified those things that are in the way... We want to give those to you right now. Please hear us, Father, as we lift up to you in Jesus' name those external factors, those things that get in the way. We want to name them to you right now, God. And those internal things, Father, the things inside us that are messing with both of us. We want to give it to you. Father, we give our marriages to you. We give our families to you. We offer this church to you in the name of Jesus. And we ask for your mercy. We ask for your grace. We ask for forgiveness. We ask for strength. We ask for marriages that reflect your glory. And in the name of Jesus, we all say together, amen. amen. Let's stand together, church. Let's sing.